Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, I have the privilege of speaking to you not only this week, but next week as well. And both weeks, I am speaking on the law of God. Next week, I'm going to be speaking on the heart of the law. God, the heart of God's law speaks to our heart. Unfortunately, man in his sinful condition, we don't always want to hear what his law says to our heart. Some people reject his law entirely. Others ignore what the law says to our heart, effectively gutting God's law, turning it into a hollow shell of outward actions that we can try to keep and claim we please him. He's not pleased with such hypocrisy. But that's next week's message. This week, I want to speak to you about did Yeshua in the law? Because if Yeshua ended the law, then other questions kind of become irrelevant. They're moot. Throughout the world, those who claim that they follow Jesus or Jesus or whatever form his name takes in their language almost universally believe that Yeshua got rid of the law, either entirely or in part. Well, Yeshua addresses this very question himself. So today we're going to look at what Yeshua said, uh, and then we're going to look at how do people make sense of his words if they think that Yeshua got rid of the law. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we want your truth. And I ask today that you give me clarity of words, Lord, that you help us to understand your word, what you have said, that you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth. I pray that you clear up misunderstanding. And, and help us to understand all that you have for us and walk in all that you have for us. And we ask this in the powerful, mighty name of Yeshua. Amen. Okay, so in Matthew, there we go. Matthew five, seventeen, Yeshua says, and we'll, we'll just start by reading his words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the, or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. His words are pretty clear. Let's look at them more carefully. So, sorry. He says, here, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
This is the core of what he's saying. And he's telling us what he hasn't come to do. Very clearly, very straightforward. And he's not only saying that he hasn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but he's going on to say that on the contrary, he's fulfilling them. He is upholding them. So he is doing the opposite of abolishing. He also says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest, not the, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law. Well, the earth is still here. I saw the sky this morning as we came to Shul. So God's law hasn't gone away. If there is an expiration date on the law, it's not where this creation exists. And he says, not an iota, not a dot. What does that mean? Well, uh, an iota is the Greek letter that corresponds to our letter I. And the Greeks got their alphabet from the Phoenicians. And Phoenicians were a Canaanite people. The Canaanite alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, you trace them far enough back, they're the same alphabet. And in fact, in Greek, you don't say iota, you say yota. And that sounds a lot like the Hebrew letter from which it was derived, yod. Yeshua here is, of course, talking about God's law, which is given in Hebrew. So he's not talking about Greek. And let's look at, I've got our Torah scroll right here behind me. We'll put it up on the side slides. Here we go. And uh, every line here in this picture has at least one yod in it. It's the smallest letter. And I've highlighted here some for you. Uh, you can see the letter doesn't even go all the way down to the baseline. I'll take the highlights off. You can see them more clearly. So not the smallest letter he's talking about. He also says, not an iota, not a dot. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, the Greek word that's used here is karaya, which etymologically, it literally means a little horn. The Greek grammarians used it to refer to punctuation and diacritical marks. Yeshua, of course, is talking about the Torah, which is written in Hebrew. And at his time, uh, diacritical marks weren't used, the vowel points that we now have. Those uh, were a later development, and certainly they didn't exist at the time the law was given. So he's talking about the letters. What is he talking about? Well, if we look at... My clicker's not working. There we go. Okay. Up here is a cough and a bait. Two very similar letters. Uh, the cough on your right, one stroke rounded, the bait two strokes, and that bottom stroke extends past the end of the downstroke by just a little bit, making a little uh, nub or a projection there, or we might say a little horn. It's the key feature that distinguishes the two letters from one another. When you're reading the Hebrew, that's what your eye is looking for. And if we look at the Torah scroll again, I've highlighted up there the word kavodcha, the first two letters. You can see the kaf and the bait uh, are very similar, and it's just that little, that little horn that makes the difference between the two of them. And it's not just those two letters. The resh and the dalit have a similar thing. The resh on your right, the dalit on your left. The dalit has a little projection. And if we look at our Torah scroll, I've highlighted here uh, a place where we have a resh and a few letters to the left, a dalit. 
so that you can see that. So what is Yeshua saying here that not an, not an iota, not a dot is going to pass away? The, the um, NIV actually renders this not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen. And that captures it. Because if, if the little horn that distinguishes one letter from another uh, were lost, in some cases that could change the meaning of what's said. If a, if a yod disappears, in some cases that could change the meaning of what's said. So he's saying God's law, not just as a whole, isn't going to pass away, but down to the smallest details that carry meaning even down to the way it's written, the very letters, those aren't going anywhere. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be considered, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, when he's talking about the law not, not passing away, he's not just talking about the words or the letters of the law. He's also talking about the commandments of the law and the obligation to do them. That's not passing away either. And therefore, God wants people who will do them and teach others to do them. And those people will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And who is greater than Messiah himself? And what is he doing right here? He's teaching us about the law. And his words here are very clear. You know, I remember once asking myself, how could he have said this clearer? And you hardly have to ask the question before you realize, how could he have been any clearer? How could he more clearly say, I'm not abolishing the law? How could he more clearly say, it's not going anywhere? The commands of the law aren't disappearing. Down to the smallest details, it's here. For how long? As long as heaven and earth exist. Another thing I want you to see is... I point out to you, is that Yeshua, in saying this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. He's saying this because he knows a lot of people are going to think this. He's warning us. This is not correct. I have not come for that purpose. So we need to take his words to heart. We need to heed his warning, not to misunderstand him. I also want to point out to you where Matthew, in uh, arranging his narrative about Yeshua, where he places this in his book. So he starts out in chapter 1 with the genealogy, the lineage of Yeshua, and he shows how he is the son of David. Because Matthew's point is to present to us Yeshua as the son of David, as the anointed, the Messiah, and so he starts out with him being the son of David in the kingly lineage. He then goes on to have, tell us about the wise men who say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have his flight to Egypt and his return. We see the fulfillment of prophecy. 
Then in chapter 3, we're introduced to John, the immerser, and Yeshua is immersed. And then the Spirit of God comes down from heaven in the form of a dove and lands on him. And the voice from heaven says, this is my son. So we see that he is the son of God. He is then driven by that same spirit out into the wilderness where he is tested. He is tempted by the tempter. He fasts for 40 days, reminding us of Moses. God said, I will raise up one. Moses said, God will raise up one from among you like me, a prophet like me. Listen to him. And so we see that Yeshua is like Moses. And as he's tempted, he lives by every word of God that proceeds from the mouth of God. He passes the temptation. He does not succumb to evil. He obeys his father. So he is morally excellent. He is worthy. Then in chapter 4, he begins his public ministry. He goes around teaching in all the synagogues. He calls his first disciples. And he has power to heal all kinds of diseases, demonstrating that he is Messiah. And now in chapter 5, we are going to have chapters 5 through 7, three whole chapters. He's only spent four chapters so far introducing us to Yeshua as the Messiah. Now he's going to give us what we now call the Sermon on the Mount, introducing us to the teaching of Yeshua. So here's who Yeshua was, where he came from, how he was uh, you know, recognized by God, and what he was doing. What did he say? He starts with the Beatitudes, and then he talks about how we are the, the salt and the light. And then he says, still, this is just chapter 5, he's got much more to his sermon. He says this statement, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. So Matthew, in arranging this and deciding what to record, what not to, and how to put it in order, He puts these statements right up front. Why? In part because it's yet one more statement of who Yeshua is. The anointed of God is not going to come and undercut God's law. He's not going to come and overthrow God's law. He is going to support God's law. And so Matthew is presenting this statement to us as yet another proof of the Messiahship of Yeshua, that he is the promised one. He is the one who, like Moses, we need to listen to. So as I said earlier, it's an almost universal belief among followers of Yeshua uh, that throughout the world that he got rid of the law. So how do people take Yeshua's very clear words here and try to, well, explain away what he's saying. Uh, let's look at some various things that people say. I'm sure you've heard a lot of, a lot of probably all of these. Um, in fact, you may have or still believe some of these things. So let's take a look at what people say. Uh, one thing that's said... My clicker's not working. Ah, people say, until all is accomplished. Yeshua said the law is only going to last until all is accomplished. And when he hung on the tree, he said, it's finished. And so Yeshua accomplished it. 
And so that's why the law is done away with. It's, it's just what he said, until all is accomplished. And yet, in the very same sentence, he says, until heaven and earth pass away. So that explanation is taking his words out of context to try and make him say something he's not quite saying. He says, until heaven and earth pass away. So, until all is accomplished, okay, takes his words out of context. And my clicker's not working well. Just go on to the next one for me. Um, Okay. Until heaven and earth are still here, as we talked about earlier. And when we're talking about heaven and earth not passing away, I want to, yeah, here in Jeremiah 33, I want to take a look at this passage because it relates to this. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that the day and the night do not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. We clearly see that Yeshua, the son of David, is part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. But as Yeshua, the son of David, shall reign forever, the Levites, as ministers, he says, shall forever be there to offer sacrifices and offerings. The Levitical priesthood has not gone away. In fact, in this morning's, in this week's Torah portion, this morning we read the fourth Aliyah, but in the first Aliyah, if you read the whole uh, portion, he says that God says he is making a perpetual covenant of priesthood with Phineas because of the atonement he made for Israel. Perpetual, as in forever, as in the Hebrew word olam, which we often translate forever. Now, people often, I mean, some people will look at this passage and say, oh, well, Yeshua is the priest because he's replaced the Levitical priests. And they will point to Hebrews where he talks about how Yeshua is our high priest. But here's a, let me point out to you an important passage there in Hebrews uh, 8.4. He says, now if he, that's Yeshua, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So he's saying, he's making his case that Yeshua is a priest, but he's saying, but if he were here on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Why? Because the office is filled. We already have priests. The temple doesn't have a help wanted sign on it. The office is already full. We don't need another earthly priest. But what we need is a heavenly priest. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying that Yeshua is. He is a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek up in heaven, not at the earthly tabernacle, which is a shadow of what's in heaven. He's in the original itself. But that doesn't mean 
that the earthly priesthood is going away. It's not a matter of replacement. If it were a replacement, Yeshua could go into the earthly temple and say, guys, you're out of here. I'm taking over. But the author of Hebrews says if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest because there are already men who serve there. So it's not a matter of replacement. And if it were a matter of replacement, tell me, does the older replace the newer or does the newer replace the older? If it's a matter of replacement, definitely the newer replaces the older. So which is older, the priesthood of Aaron or the priesthood of Melchizedek? The priesthood of Melchizedek, as the author of Hebrews has pointed out to us. It's older and greater. So if it were a matter of replacement, then the priesthood of Melchizedek was replaced a long time ago. But it's not. Yeshua is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, concurrent with the priesthood of Aaron, but in a different place. Aaron is the priest on earth and his descendants. Yeshua is the priest in heaven. All right. Another thing that you hear people say is that, you know, Yeshua said, uh, until, until all is accomplished. I'm sorry, we were talking about that. So, next slide, please. So, um, the problem with this view is it takes his words out of context. Heaven and earth are still here. Also, not everything that's written in the law and the prophets has been accomplished. Even when Yeshua hung on the tree and said, it's finished, he hadn't yet risen from the dead. That wasn't finished. He hadn't ascended to heaven. That wasn't finished. He hasn't yet returned in power and glory to establish his kingdom. That wasn't accomplished either. So while he accomplished our atonement, he did not yet accomplish all. All has not yet been accomplished. All right. Let's go on to the next thing. Uh, uh, one more, please. So, he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And very similar to the accomplished all argument, people say, well, he fulfilled the law. So the law has been fulfilled. So it's done. It, it's, it's completed. It's over with, therefore. Um, so, let me get this straight. He didn't get rid of the law by abolishing it. Instead, he got rid of it by fulfilling it. Like, what's the practical difference between those two? You're taking Yeshua's words and contorting them, twisting them on their head, and then kind of squinting at them and saying, no, he really got rid of it. So, it's not what he said. Secondly, it confuses law with debt. Okay? So... Um, if I owe you $20, okay, and uh, I have an obligation to you, when I pay you that $20, I've now paid off my obligation. My debt ceases to exist. I no longer owe you $20. I paid it to you. I'm free of that obligation now. That's how debt works. When you pay off a debt, it causes the debt to cease to exist and there's no further obligation. But that's not how law works. Um, so in law, law continues to have abiding 
obligation. Let me give you an example. You drive to work in the morning, and you're observing the speed limit the whole way there. You've observed the law of the speed limit. So on your way home, are you free to tear home at 195 miles an hour? You've fulfilled the law of the speed limit. Why can't you? Because the law doesn't go away. Okay, they're going to pull you over, handcuff you, throw you in jail. And when you stand before the judge, you're going to say, well, I fulfilled the law. Okay, now, law can cause the incurment of a debt. The operation of law can result in a debt. Okay, so you may get fined and sentenced to serve jail time. And when you've paid your fine and you served your jail time, your penalty will have been, your your sentence will have been fulfilled, and you won't have further obligation as regards to that. But does that mean that when you get out of jail, you can cruise home at insane speeds? No. The fact that you've paid your penalty doesn't mean that you, you don't continue to observe the law. That's not what he means by fulfill. In fact, so... And there are those who say, well, he fulfilled it and he paid my penalty for all my sins. So, hey, you know, I got a rich uncle who pays my speeding tickets so I can speed all I want. And Paul even addresses this warped uh, type of thinking in Romans 6. He says in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can you, we who died to sin still live in it? He's like, you just don't get it. That's not how it works. And since we're talking about, um, okay, so in fulfill, what does he mean by fulfill then? So to fulfill means to bring something to its full measure. And let me give you an example from the very words of Yeshua himself. In John 16, 24, he says, Now then, until now, you have not asked, excuse me, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Same Greek word. Okay, may be full is translated for a Greek verb here. And it's the same verb that Yeshua uses. So what is Yeshua saying? Ask. Receive. Get your final measure of joy. And that's all you're going to get. From this point forward, after you've received, uh, your life is going to be joyless. You'll have to live a sober life with a grave, long face. Is that what he means? No, it's absurd. What does he mean? He means ask, receive, so that your joy will be brought to its full measure. You'll have all that I intend for you to have. And you'll live in that joy. He doesn't mean that our joy is going to come to an end because it's been fulfilled. Nor does he mean that the law will come to an end because he fulfills it. Instead, he's bringing the law to its full measure. How does he do that? Um, There are lots of ways he does that. Obviously, he observed the law himself perfectly. Another way is that he, in dying, he paid the penalty that we incurred 
as a result of our sin. So he fulfilled the penalty of the law as well. But it doesn't stop there. Let's look, since we're talking about fulfilled, let's look at Romans 8, 3 through 4. Paul says, For God achieved what the law could not do because it was weakened through the flesh. So he's been telling us that the law is good, that the law points out our sin. Uh, The law can also restrain our sin. But the law has a problem, and the problem isn't the law. The problem is us. We have a problem. We have a sin problem. Sin in us. And that sin is weakening the law so that we don't do the law. So that's what he's talking about. For God achieved what the law could not do because it was weakened through the flesh. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, he dealt with the sin problem. And why? Paul goes right on in verse 4. So that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Remember, he wants people who will do and teach. Okay? Yeshua is fulfilling the law not just by his own actions in doing the law, not just by paying the penalty that we owe, but he's also fulfilling the law by freeing us from sin so that we can walk in a way which fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. So he is making a way for us to fulfill the law, and that's part of how he is fulfilling it. So, another thing that we, objection we often hear, people say, well, Israel broke the covenant. Israel broke God's covenant, so, you know, it's over with. Well, if breaking the covenant ended the covenant, then I got news for you. The covenant ended before Moses even came down from the mountain. As Israel was making the golden calf, they were, God had just said to them, you know, in the voice from the, from the, the clouds and the dark, dark clouds and the darkness, he had said, you know, do not make for yourselves any graven image. And here they were doing it. So if breaking the covenant ended it, it ended a long, long time ago. Now, human contracts sometimes have clauses that say, you know, if, if either party, you know, breaks the terms of this agreement, then it will cease to be valid, you know, except for paragraphs 1, 5, and 7 or whatever. Um, do you know that the law of God actually addresses specifically what will happen if Israel breaks the covenant? There's actually a clause in the law it addresses this very thing. So let's look at Leviticus 26. In the first part of the chapter, he talks about the blessings for keeping the law. And then in verse 14, he shifts gears and he says, But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then this is what I will do to you. And he goes, to lay out, goes on to lay out the curses of the law. Your crops will fail. Your enemies will overrun you. Uh, you'll, you'll live in, in panic. And a few times he says, but if you continue in this way, then this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to further discipline you. 
we finally, in verse 27, he says, But if in spite of all this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And he talks about how their enemies will come upon them, they will besiege their cities, they will uh, be in sieges where they're starving, their enemies will rip open the pregnant women, they will haul them off to a foreign land. All these things happened. And he says in verse 44, toward the end of the chapter, Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I pour them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am yod Hey vav Hey, their God. Israel may break God's covenant. We may violate what he says to do. But he will not break his covenant. He will preserve for himself a remnant. The covenant does not end. It alters the way God interacts with Israel. If they break his covenant. But it does not end the covenant. So, breaking the covenant does not terminate Israel or God's obligations under the covenant, God is obliged to discipline his people. Another one that you will often hear, um, particularly, uh, at least among Protestant circles, you'll particularly hear this one in Reformed traditions, like Presbyterian or, or Dutch Reform or the like, although you'll hear it plenty of other places too, and that is that God's law consists of three parts. The moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. Um, and part of the reason you'll come across this most often, at least among Protestants, in Reformed traditions is because it's part of what the Reformers taught, is a key part of what John Calvin taught. In fact, in his commentary on this passage, he starts by um, talking about how God's law is eternal. Yeshua didn't get rid of it. Even down to its smallest details, it lasts forever. He says that Yeshua made this statement because any time you have some kind of reform or renewal, there are unstable people who will latch on to that and say, everything that went before, we chuck out the window and we're starting over. And he says, no, that's not the truth. And then after saying all this, he makes this curious statement. He says, but it is asked, were not the ceremonies among the commandments of God the least of which we are now required to observe. I answer, we must look to the design and object of the legislator. God enjoins ceremonies that their outward use might be temporal and their meaning eternal. That man does not break ceremonies who omits what is shadowy but retains their effect. So, we must look to the design and object of the legislator. The legislator, the one giving the laws, is God himself. And so we have to look, what were his purposes in giving the law, is what he's saying. And he says it was God's purpose that the ceremonies of the law were only temporary, but their meaning eternal. So we already looked at Yeshua saying, talking about the commands of the law that those who do them and teach others will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The commands of the law have not gone anywhere. If God's intended them to be temporal, 
what is the expiration date? It's not before heaven and earth pass away. If they're temporal, they last at least as long as this creation. So this idea is, first of all, not what Yeshua said. Secondly, you know, the whole idea of them being temporal, well, maybe, but you've got the wrong temporality, okay? So why do people... Now, Calvin was no dummy, okay? He was a very intelligent man, and he was a scholar. He was very well studied. He's not the only one to, to talk about this kind of thing. I mean, he didn't even come up with it himself. He talks in his Institutes of Christian Religion about how these are well-known division of the law. 300 years before his time, Thomas Aquinas was arguing about the same division of parts of his God's law. Thomas Aquinas, also a scholar, intelligent man. Um, so why do they say this in spite of what Yeshua says? Because, you know, after Yeshua makes all these statements, to then turn around and say, well, God just meant it to be temporary. And I'm, and I'm keeping the meaning of it. You know, judge, I have the meaning of the speed limit law in my heart. You know, you're, you're, it means you're not supposed to endanger other people. And, and I was driving late at night. There weren't too many people on the road, and I'm an exceptionally good driver. So there was no way that somebody was going to pull onto the freeway and, that I didn't notice. Other drivers wouldn't just cut in front of me when I wasn't expecting it because I'm a really good driver. So I was not endangering my neighbor. I kept the meaning of the speed limit. Um, you can be intelligent. You can be well-studied. You can still be wrong. Um, so, part of it is that the reformers and those before them would look at various passages in the scriptures, conclude that Yeshua, conclude that the law had passed away, and therefore when they come to Yeshua's words, they're trying to take his words and fit them into their understanding that they've drawn from elsewhere. But, his words are so clear, you've got to kind of contort them, you, you know, to, to take a square peg and pound it in a round hole, you kind of have to shave off parts of it. And so they've got to shave off parts of Yeshua's words. They've got to try and alter them in order to fit their preconceived ideas. Now, we don't have time to go into all the various passages that are brought forward on this. Um, I want to look at probably the one that most often is put forward. Hebrews 8.13. The author of Hebrews is just quoted from uh, Jeremiah, where God says, I will, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And so he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so they say, proof positive, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is over with. It's obsolete, it's vanished, it's gone. You'll notice he doesn't say it's gone. He says it's ready to vanish. The Greek word here is angus. Um, it's usually translated like near or at hand. It can be used of places this town was near that place. It's also used often temporally, something was near. The Passover was near, so Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. Passover hadn't come yet, otherwise he'd be late. It's used, after this use in Hebrews, um, it's only used two more times in the entire scripture. 
and those are in Revelation. One at the beginning of the book, Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then at the end, in the last chapter, when he's making his concluding remarks, he says in 22.10, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Well, this book and this prophecy, among other things, they include a lot of things that haven't yet happened, and they include that there's a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. So near, just like Yeshua at the end of the book says, I'm coming soon, and we're like, it's been a while. (laughs) Where are you? I thought you said soon. His soon and our soon are different. And what we see here is that near can still, from God's perspective, you know, can mean the book of Revelation and all that happens there is near. So when Yeshua, when when the author of Hebrews says it's ready to vanish away or it's near to vanishing, that is not necessarily inconsistent with what Yeshua said, that it's not until heaven and earth pass away. Um, and, And we could go on. You know, he says, the author of Hebrews says there's a change in the law as well. You know, law can have, um, you have three different types of changes you can make to a written document. You can delete things, you can alter things, or you can add to it. Okay? Yeshua said the law isn't passing away, not even the letters. You can't delete from it. By the same token, you can't alter it because if you, if you take out this part and replace it with that word, I mean, well, if you lost a yod or... or a little horn, smallest stroke of a pen, you could change the meaning of it. And Yeshua says that's not happening. So there's only one other type of, of, of change that can take place, and that's an addition. Yeshua's words don't rule out that, that God could add to his law. And when he's talking about Yeshua being a new priest and therefore the law has to change because there's a new priest, Yeshua, as we've already seen, his priesthood is in addition to the priesthood defined in the law. There are also lots of uh, passages that are brought forward by Paul. Again, we don't have time to look at all these, but I want to point out to you one thing Paul does say that you should keep in mind. Anytime you're looking at a passage of Paul that people say, see, this proves that the law is gone, or you look at it yourself and say, doesn't it mean that? That's Romans 3.31. In Romans, uh, he's been making his case that all have sinned. Uh, Those without the law have sinned. Those with the law have sinned. In chapter 3, he's saying there is now a righteousness being revealed apart from the law through faith that the law and the prophets bear witness to. And as he talks about this, he then brings up in verse 31 this objection. He says, do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Don't these sound kind of familiar? It's the same kind of thing that Yeshua said. He's not coming to abolish the law. He's coming to fulfill it. He's upholding it. And Paul is telling us the same thing. If if you think that I'm telling you that the law of God is done away with, you've misunderstood me. That's not what I'm saying. I am upholding the law. He's saying things that can be difficult to understand, as even Peter talks about. 
And, but he's, and he knows that he is liable to be misunderstood, by some at least, as he's trying to explain some concepts which, in our sin, are sometimes difficult to grasp, especially when we have predisposition toward other ideas or we don't really want to hear those things. We're eager to latch on to an idea of, oh good, we can chuck the law then. Don't have to obey God. So when you look at other passages, either the words of Yeshua, you need to consider his words. I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. When you look at passages by Paul, you need to take his warning to heart. Is this what I'm saying? That God's law has been overthrown? By no means. Rather, we uphold the law. So, as I've been speaking today, um, I expect that of those of you who are sitting here hearing me, or those of you on the live stream, watching, listening, that there are probably a variety of reactions. Some of you know this, and you're saying, yes, yes, yes. And I hope that my words today have brought further clarity to you and reinforced your understanding and your belief in what Yeshua has said. I see some thumbs up. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Uh, Some of you have probably been a a bit confused. I mean, you know, Yeshua says this, but then you have these other ones, and how does it fit together? Um, And I hope that I have cleared up a lot of that confusion, or at least in some areas, that we can see how Yeshua's words are clear. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you've long had the perspective that the law has been done away with, and as you've read Matthew and Yeshua's words here, uh, you're kind of puzzled. You know, it's one of those difficult sayings of Yeshua. What could he have meant? Because it doesn't quite fit. And it doesn't fit because you've been trying to pound that square peg in a round hole. And we don't fix that by shaving off parts of what he says to make it fit. The problem is the round hole. The problem is our preconceived ideas uh, based on wrong understanding of other parts of the scripture that lead us to have difficulty with what he's saying there. And, you know, some of you uh, may be very upset with what I'm saying because you don't like the idea that God's law continues, that you need to uh, consider that, that parts of it are things that you need to do. I want to point out to you the words of Yeshua. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's not only warning us not to misunderstand his words. He's giving us a positive command. Don't think this. Because it's wrong. And he's telling us, don't think it. If you insist on holding on to your belief that he abolished the law in some way or another, you are disregarding his words. You are walking in disobedience to him. He tells you very clearly and plainly, don't think this. Because he knows how wrong it is. You need to humbly submit to him and to his words. You need to believe his words. Take him at his word. If other passages don't make sense, you need to ask him to give you understanding and insight 
Go back to those passages. Reevaluate them in light of what he very clearly states here. Reevaluate Paul's statements in light of what Paul says. That he's not come to abolish the law, to overthrow the law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are great. You are holy. You never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your law does not change. We thank you for Yeshua, who brings fullness to your law. Lord, give us right understanding. Help us to understand your word, that we know it, that we can understand it, that we think rightly so that we can do it, Lord, and that we can teach it. May your name be glorified. May Yeshua be glorified. May you be glorified in us as we fulfill the righteous requirements of your law by walking according to your spirit. We ask this in the mighty and powerful name of Yeshua. Amen.